This is Chapter 99 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we experience the unraveling of an American family dynasty in the debut novel from the great-granddaughter of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. We'll talk to an author who's changing the game when it comes to reluctant young readers, and we find out how breaking the rules can pay off big. What is a legacy? To borrow a line from a hip Broadway musical, it's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. But what happens when that legacy is a burden on those who follow? That's just one of the themes Maura Roosevelt, yes, those Roosevelts, explores in her fictional debut, Baby of the Family. She recently spoke with our Pat Farnack about the impact her own family history had on the novel. I have to ask you, you're, you're a descendant, first of all, of the Roosevelt family. You're the great-granddaughter of Eleanor Roosevelt and FDR. This is a novel, but it is about being from a well-known clan. So I imagine that helped you write this novel? You know, it did. I um, The novel, the, the characters in the novel really are nothing like my nuclear family at all. Mm, but yeah. sort of the, the premise... Um, was inspired by my greater family. For example, um, the patriarch in Baby of the Family, Roger, uh, was married four times, and so was my grandfather. Oh, oh, mm-hmm. did not know that. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, readers are going to wonder about that, though, and your relationship with your your own family. I just saw. I have to mention this. I just saw Meryl Streep on PBS oh, talking wow. about um, your great-grandmother Eleanor's voice and how she she mm-hmm. got it down amazingly for Ken Burns' series. Uh, what, mm-hmm. what is it like having such a lineage? And I imagine that your Whitby's in Baby of the Family had to contend with a lot of the things that you had to contend with. Yeah, you know, um, I grew up uh, in the Boston area, and my, my parents are incredibly down to earth. Um, and so they made sure that my sisters and I never felt too special. But um, <laughs> in the book, there's a the big theme of legacy in Baby of the Family. And uh, the Whitby's legacy is um, very different from my own family's legacy, because yeah. in the for the Whitby's, it's really sort of a burden. Um, they're carrying all these expectations. Um, the book is about um, this old aristocratic family that Um, in recent years has fallen from grace. But uh, as you know, it really focuses on the three um, youngest children who are in their 20s and 30s. And they are half siblings from uh, three out of four of their father's marriages. Um, But they're kind of walking around in a time where their family has uh, a lot of notoriety, but doesn't have a lot of money and aren't, the family is no longer active in business endeavors. Um, But these adult children still feel like they have all these expectations to live up to. Um, so I think that's uh, sort of the, the legacy that they're really getting from, from, their, from the Whitby family. What was the, uh, the much-married father, the patriarch, Roger, what do you think he was trying to do leaving everything to the baby of the family? <laughs> so so yeah so um he 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 leaves everything to Nick who's the actual youngest member of the family and Nick is maybe not the most troubled character but he is really he's really lost and searching for something to, a way to make his mark on the world so when he gets this inheritance from Roger he believes um that it is some kind of 
a sign uh, <laughs> that he should do something big with it. Yeah. But um, I believe Roger actually, you know, it was his his youngest child. And I think that uh, the act of giving it to him was partially a, a manipulation from Nick's mother and yes. partially a reasoning of um, he's the child that needs it the most. Yeah. Although, as is mentioned throughout your novel, uh, he wasn't even a Whitby by blood. He was adopted, yes, he's the correct? adopted child. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know, my, my favorite part, though, of the book, but also the, the part that made my skin crawl, was mm-hmm. was Shelley's entanglement with that uh, mysterious blind psycho, Mr. Kamal. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Did you just uh, have a, a yeah. nightmare one night and woke up with that in your head? Oh, wow. Tell me a little bit about that. I'm glad I really tried to push the envelope of creepiness. Oh, you succeeded. (laughs) Thanks. I think, you know, that relationship, um, Shelly gets into uh, this unhealthy relationship with this older man that is um, fairly salacious. But but I do think that it's sort of that that relationship is really a vehicle to show her lack of self-confidence or self-worth while the book is taking place. Now, Nick, Brooke, and Shelley, they're the main characters in your book. They all do seem so lost. You mentioned that with Nick earlier. Mm -hmm. They seem to have um, a lot of blame for the patriarch, Roger, who died. But Mm -hmm. the moms in this story are so messed up, too. The the kids really don't seem to blame them, though, as much, do they? Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. I think that... I think that they're the the child the uh, Nick Brooke and Shelley's sort of um, uh, consternation about their father is really wrapped up in the fact that their father was the connection to the Whitbys. Yes. So while they're struggling with being a Whitby and the expectation that that the expectations that that um, brings with it, they're really sort of putting all of that pressure um, on their father. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, I wasn't sure how to feel about Shelley in the end. What were you going for? Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, Shelley, uh, the the final chapter is sort of like an epilogue, and um, Shelley is in her late 30s. And really, um, I think what what I feel is happening with Shelley at that time is that she has come to terms with many of the events of her life. Um, but I certainly don't think it's an entirely happy ending for her. Right. I think I'd agree with that, especially with her feeding, mm-hmm. feeding her cats all by, yeah. <laughs> by herself. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. A quick question. I know we have to, to uh, wrap this up. Uh, I could see baby of the family as maybe an Amazon prime miniseries. Has uh, Hollywood oh come to call yet? Oh, not yet, but I I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mara, I so enjoyed reading Baby of the Family. Uh, So much luck with that. Thank you so much. It was nice to talk to you. If you're the parent of a child who isn't big on reading, our next book might do the trick. It's called Game Changer, and author Tom Greenwald employs an unusual style to tell his story of a youth football player named Teddy who's knocked into a coma after a particularly grueling summer training camp session. I spoke with him about his book, which some have described as a book in verse. It's safe to say that I've never read a book like yours. It's written in such an unusual but engaging way, pulling together dialogue, transcripts, text messages, online message board posts. Why did you decide to write this book in that style? 
Um, it's a good question. The original conceit for Game Changer was that the whole whole book was going to be people talking to the uh, the boy Teddy who's in the coma, and just in the course of their one one way conversations with him, reveal what had really happened to him and start to unpeel the layers of the mystery. But then that I quickly realized that that would probably get monotonous for the reader, so I wanted to uh, devise a way to tell the story in the way that kids are communicating with each other these days and kind of be a fly on the wall in all these different uh, places and all these different ways um, and just eavesdrop on conversations between kids and the transcripts of the recording with the therapists and the students um, so that instead of kind of directing the reader what to think, they could kind of eavesdrop and make up their own minds based on what they were observing and how they were what they were reading, but but how they were observing these kids' behavior. And it just felt like how kids communicate with each other today. So I wanted to dive into that a little bit. And when I talk to kids in schools, I say this is proof that you don't have to write in any one way or in any one style. Um, There are different ways to tell stories. There are many different writing techniques, and you can feel free to find the technique that works best for you in the story you're telling. So this story tackles a couple of controversial topics, youth football, hazing, bullying. Are you hoping to spark a conversation between the kids who read it and their parents? I am I think it's 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 um a very personal story because I had a son who played football and I find football fascinating and complicating it complicated because I I love the game so much but I know that there are so many problems with it I I feel the same way about youth sports I loved watching all my kids play sports but there's so many problems with youth sports so I am drawn to subjects that have two sides and with football particularly um, and youth football, it's kind of the perfect storm of how competition is great, learning how to win and lose at a young age and handle it gracefully on both sides of the winning and losing equation is important, but it tips over into ultra-intense win-at-all-costs mentality that is absurd on the face of it when you're talking about 14, 13-year-old boys and girls playing sports and they're the pressure they put on themselves, the pressure parents put on them, the pressure coaches put on them. And by the way, I was not immune to this. I was I was a highly enthusiastic <laughs> parent observer, to coin a euphemistic phrase. Um, and looking back on it, I think I behaved ridic- ridiculously at times and got way too caught up in it. And the sport is dangerous. It's incredibly action-packed and thrilling, but it's also dangerous. And the team building that is so important um, and it doesn't have to be a sport. It can be an orchestra, a, a band, a dance troupe, a cheerleading troupe. Any group that a child uh, joins, the the bonding is incredibly important to their development, their social development. But that bonding can cross over into the bullying and the hazing and the older kids making the younger kids do things to prove that they belong that can be silly but can also be dangerous. And it just felt like this great stew of issues that could be combined into one compelling story that hopefully just leads to conversations 
and and questions about how to make it better. I don't take one side or the other necessarily. I mean, obviously, I'm anti-bullying and anti-hazing, but in terms of youth sports and in terms of football, I try to convey that there's as many great things about it as there are um, not great things about it. And so I want them to figure out a way to... to I want the sport to, to thrive and survive and also be aware that there's some things that have to change about it. Knowing what you know now or feeling the way you feel now, would you let your son play again? That's a really good question. I probably would. I probably would let them play. Um, I don't know if I would let them play tackle football at a young age, um, but I only had one. I have three boys, and only one of them played football, and he decided to switch from soccer to football, I think, in, a, in seventh grade. And I would let them play through high school if they really, really wanted to. Um, I think the the pros outweigh the cons, and I think the risk is minimal at that at that stage. I mean, I may be sounding naive and idiotic, but um, if one of them were good enough to have wanted to play in college and Jack did flirt with it, it, it became much more of a question at that point. Um, is it worth it? It's so all-consuming, for one thing. And it's intense, and the the people, the, the players are bigger, faster, stronger. The hits are harder. So that was nothing we ended up having to decide about. But it would have been much more of a of a thought provoking conversation. But for youth football and for high school football, I probably would. Yes. I know that you've had quite some reaction to this book. Why don't you yeah. tell me a little bit of what that's been like? Um, I've gotten some really great reactions from parents and educators and and, and kids. Um, a lot of uh, teachers and librarians are writing me about how the format of it is is great for um, their reluctant readers. I never write books specifically for reluctant readers. I want every kid, whether they like like to read or don't, to read and respond to my books. But I. I did start writing books because my three kids were reluctant readers and I wanted to write books for kids like them. So it is it is near and dear to my heart when I get an email from a, an adult or a kid saying I'm not a big reader, but reading this was very meaningful to me. And I've gotten some incredible emails from kids themselves that have found the book, A, uh, something they could sink their teeth into even if they're not big readers, and B, a lot to think about and a lot to chew on. A couple of football players uh, have written me. I get, I've gotten more uh, emails from boy readers on this book than I have ever before because they're not necessarily the type, you know, 14-year-old boys, 13-year-old boys, 11-year-old boys aren't often writing to authors. Um, so it's been very gratifying and it's found its way onto a couple of American Library Association lists for reluctant readers too, which is which is also nice. I love the one that you shared with me. Uh, he wrote to you and said, it normally takes me two weeks, but I read this in one go. <laughs> yeah, that was great. It's not the longest book in the world, so that might have something to do with it. It's a <laughs> thick book, but there aren't that many words on each page. It's being called a, 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 a book in verse by some people, which is amusing to me because I certainly didn't write it. Um, I'm, I'm no poet, <laughs> um, God knows. And I didn't set out to write a book in verse. I just set out to write a book book um, with some unusual, non-traditionally prose-oriented techniques. Um, 
And that kind of scared me at first when I heard it was being described as a book and verse because I didn't know how kids would react to it. But it turns out that, especially with reluctant readers, when they open a book and they see that the writing isn't dense and overly complicated or challenging, it can be a nice magnet for them. So that's worked out well. I've spoken to other authors who who write for younger readers, and, and they've told me that it doesn't matter what the kid reads as long as they're reading because if you can hook them then you have a reader for life do you feel the same way i don't know about the reader for life thing because they're my kids would find something that they would love to read and i would go okay we're home free and then they'd revert back to their non-reading ways so it's been push and pull with them they're adults now and they do like to read a lot more than they used to when they were kids but i i don't necessarily believe that all you have to do is get a book in a kid's hands that they'll enjoy and they're hooked. Um, But I do believe that any book in any child's hand is a good thing. There's no such thing as a book that's that's too easy. There's no such thing as a book that's below level. Um, You, especially with kids who do not like to pick up books on their own, finding anything that makes them want to read instead of do anything else is a huge win. And it could be a short-lived victory. It could be a victory for life, but um, take your victories where you can. So when I hear stories about parents saying, I don't want my kid reading this book or that book, it's not challenging enough, I, I, I am fully on board with all those who say, that's ridiculous. Um, let your kid read what they want to read. They'll find their way to something else they want to read someday. It might be next week or next year. But do not tell them that what they're reading is not right because that's the last thing you want when the kid finally steps in that in that direction. Do you plan to write another book like Game Changer or do you think this is a, a one-off for you? I do want to write another book about sports. Um, and this was my first kind of more serious book. I tend to write funnier, sillier books. Um, and I, I did love it. Um, whether it'll be in the same format and these kinds of techniques that we were talking about with the social posts and the transcriptions of conversations, I don't know. But I am intrigued. I have another idea cooking for another sports book. I'm getting a lot of <laughs> a lot of school visits. Kids are asking me about a sequel to Game Changer, and I never contemplated that when I was writing it. It feels like a, a self-contained story to me. But the more they ask, the more I say, is there a sequel there? So I haven't ruled that out. My publisher would have to get on board with that too, of course. Uh, but the idea of writing something similar that is a little bit more thought-provoking and intense, um, and especially about football because there's so much um, material out there, so much rich stuff about this game and how beloved it is, but also how wary people are becoming of it, that I think there's more gold to be mined there. I find it so interesting that you're being asked for a sequel because it is kind of open-ended and it proves that even at a young age, we need closure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. A lot of kids have said, we want to see how Teddy does um, when he goes back onto the field. And it's and I say to them, are you sure he's going to play again? I mean, I don't want to really give away right. too much about the book, but this is a kid who suffered a, a terrible uh, head injury at the beginning of the book. And I am, I was not, if I had to guess about Teddy's future, I would not 
necessarily put football getting back on the field. Maybe maybe getting involved with football in some capacity, but many many kids just don't really think that way. They they're not really thinking long term ramifications here. They're saying Teddy's a great player, and yeah, he got hurt, but but get him back on the field. I want to see him score the winning touchdown. You know, a lot of kids want that kind of satisfying triumphant ending for him, which in reality would probably not happen. So I've had interesting conversations with kids about that. Yeah, if anything, it's it's another great jumping off point for conversations with yeah. you know, with kids about how how life sometimes isn't fair. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And how there is no, you know, traditional triumphant ending, um, where the 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 struggling hero triumphs in the end. It doesn't always happen that way. When I wrote my first book, it's about a boy who doesn't like to read. And the one thing I told the publisher um, about Charlie Joe Jackson's Guide to Not Reading is that it has to end with him not liking to read on the last page just as much as he doesn't like to read on the first page. Because that was what I was experiencing with my own kids, and that was reality to me. I didn't want it to be another one of these books where a kid at the beginning doesn't like to read and then a librarian gives him one book and he's, as you said, he's a reader for life because it wasn't happening with me. So there aren't always tidy endings in these stories. And um, if kids can create their own endings and want to think more about it after they finish the book, that's fantastic. And I love having those conversations with them. Well, there might not be tidy endings to books, but there are to book interviews. So this, <laughs> we've been talking with Tom Greenwald. The what book a is segue. <laughs> that's what they pay me the big bucks for. <laughs> Fantastic. So the book is Game Changer. Tom Greenwald, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, which I love, by the way. So thank you. You know that old adage about it taking money to make money? Popular podcast host and self-made millionaire Nathan Latka says, forget about it. What he says it really takes is someone willing to break the rules. He recently stopped by our studios and spoke with CEO Radio's Ray Hoffman about his new book, How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital. You contend there are four old adages about business. You call them four lies that you need to forget. I don't know if I'd call them lies, but you say you need to forget them if you want to be part of the new rich. Focus on becoming an expert at one thing. Don't do that. Come up with a remarkable idea. Don't do that. Set goals and work toward them. No. And give customers what they want. Four lies that you need to forget if you want to be part of the new rich. Instead, you have five new rules. Well, your audience is listening to you say that, and you guys are watching my body language, and you're thinking, wait, no, no, these are all things I live by. I was, I was taught these things. What do you mean I have to break these to become part of the new rich? Well, Ray, this is the problem, and I'm going to use a political example. Anytime someone in any country gains power, uh, they tend, you know, the ladder they climb to gain that wealth or power, in order to protect themselves at the top, they have to complicate that path so no one else can climb the same ladder. So the wealth and the powerful today have essentially invented these four rules sold it to the broke masses, and have convinced us to stay basically where we are, not accelerate at a wealth level or from a power perspective, to compete with these people, 
by, again, living by these rules, I quickly realized I've got nothing to, to lose. I'm going to test breaking them, and it's worked out well for me. So again, these rules, it makes sense why they exist, but they're wrong. And I'm happy to dive into any of them that interests you. Okay, number one, don't focus on one thing. Yes. Don't not, focus on one thing. Not one thing. You know, there are great books by a lot of my friends. Greg with Essentialism. We've had the Keller Williams team with The One Thing. Maybe you've heard of these books. This is a very popular headline. Only do one thing. What's the saying about jack of all trades or master of none, this kind mm -hmm. of thing? In today's age, the problem is masters can be replaced. So you better be a jack of all trades and understand a lot of different things so you can find the masters in those trades and unite them around a goal. And that's way more powerful. Now, the, the second analogy I give is our economy is just more global today. right? As Friedman would say, the world is flat. And in a flat world, you've got to be able to move quickly. So if I asked you, Ray, we're driving together after this, let's say this goes well and we become best friends, and we're driving here in New York over a bridge, but the bridge says before we go over it, hey, warning, this bridge, if, if winds pass 20 miles per hour, it has a single point of failure, it will crack and fall. Now, if there was even a slight breeze that day, Ray, we'd think twice about driving over that bridge, it might fall. We're taking the tunnel. We're taking the tunnel. So here's the thing. We build our lives. By the way, bridges have like eight, nine, ten points of failure. Like, they have to go wrong at the same time for a bridge to be compromised. So why do most people build their lives around a single point of failure? Whether it's one job, focusing on one thing, or doing one thing really well. It's not a smart strategy in today's world. And so you say focus on three opportunities simultaneously, and if nothing else, you get your reps in the batting cage. That's exactly right. Just like baseball, you've got to swing. You don't want to see a perfect strike pass you by, and you're not swinging because you're distracted by the one thing you thought was important. The fact is, many people don't know what's going to win for them. So the trick is, is to juggle as much as you can, see what gains momentum, and then double down. Your second rule is copy your competitors, and you quote Picasso, good artists can copy, great artists can steal. This is right, and I don't know why people don't give themselves permission to do this, but if you're watching right now, I guarantee you, you've seen a competitor, and you're gone, wow, that's a great idea, and you have the ability to copy them aggressively, quickly, and efficiently, but you don't. And Ray, the question is why? That competitor has spent a lot of their own money and their time learning, right, going through mistakes, why would you not take advantage of that? Why would you go spend your own money, spend your own time to make the same mistakes? So people have to give themselves permission to copy aggressively. And once they copy, then add their own twist to get an advantage. Facebook does this. They rip off Insta, uh, Snapchat, right, over and over again. Steve Jobs copied directly out of Xerox Labs on the Lisa and many products. People have to copy to win. Yeah, that was one of the, the most compelling chapters in the book, I thought. Why, and, now, why was that? Because you felt like it was the thing that was most controversial? No, not because it was most controversial. I'll bring that up in a minute. Okay. Most controversial, no, but most uh, eye-opening for me. I mean, I'm aware of that concept, but I, I really didn't see it delineated in quite the way you did, so I congratulate you. Rule three I want to get to. Quit setting goals because they're keeping you broke. Yes. <laughs> You know, I laugh and people do what you just did when they say this because there are, again, books on goal setting and set great goals. But goals are very, very dangerous because corporations spend trillions and trillions of dollars to get our minds and our bodies and our energy focused on a goal. And then what do we do? We work one job. We save a little from every paycheck until we can buy that 
$20,000 Rolex watch we saw Roger Federer wearing at Wimbledon, which Rolex paid a million dollars for that sponsorship for. Or finally being able to purchase that Versace dress that we love because we saw Kim Kardashian wearing it. Or t- Now, I hope you're not, uh, maybe not, well, no, no. But going on the vacation we want, right? Buying the car we want. These are goals. What's way more effective, Ray, is to invest in the system that will produce these goals over and over again. This is kind of the difference between enjoying the process versus just only enjoying and being happy if you get the outcome you want. And the way you should think about that is a golden goose is laying these goals, the golden eggs. Most Americans, and the net worth, average net worth is negative 4,000 bucks, so if you want to be rich, you can't be average, right? They focus on the golden eggs. It's way more important to keep the golden goose well-nourished, happy, healthy, and working efficiently so they can pump out more goals. And there's a time-consuming chase that's involved toward those goals, and that's another factor in, that runs through your book. Well, I don't know if you will believe this from the book, but I'm actually an extremely lazy individual. I pride myself on a blank calendar. I think, guys, when you have a blank calendar, when news happens right now, you can act very quickly to take advantage of that news versus if you have to work a nine-to-five or your calendar is packed because you have to put dinner you know, on tonight or you have expenses, you can't react to real-time news. And, Ray, that's a disadvantage because wealthy people are reacting real-time, and usually first people to move make the first amount of money. We've posted all of Ray's interview with Nathan at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. Look for it in the author talk section. And that does it for us this week. Next time, we mark the 50th anniversary of the Miracle Mets with Hall of Famer Art Shamsky. And, oh, by the way, it's our 100th episode. Woohoo! <laughs> Don't forget, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.